Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Nate teaches about being Jesus' famous men. Enjoy. All right, guys, tonight, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 will kind of be our home uh, text. If you want to camp out there, we'll be kind of all over the place, but that's where we will uh, begin and kind of pick apart uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 to 8. Okay, uh, so tonight for the, um, on the schedule, the subject is Jesus' famous men receive Christ's design for their bodies. And uh, I'll kind of admit to you that this was is not really an ideal ti- title for uh, tonight's teaching. What, what basically happened was Christina and I sat down and we, as we worked on the outline of what we were going to teach uh, week by week, our hope and prayer was that we could have a, the same title for every single uh, session. So the women are studying the same thing tonight, Jesus Famous uh, women receive Christ's design for their bodies. Uh, if the title was just for me, I would say, Jesus, famous men, abstain from sexual immorality. <laughs> That's probably what uh, tonight is about. But for the women, they wanted to think about, you know, a body image and things that are, of course, still important for guys as well, but I don't think as important. So I wanted to really uh, dig into this side of things. So that's why the title is as it is. Uh, let's read our text tonight, though, and then I want to have a little moment of prayer. First Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul said, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. <clears throat> with a room this large, with this many people gathered together, there's a fair amount of sexual brokenness uh, right here in this room. You know, we have a lot of different experiences, uh, things we've been exposed to, unfortunately, uh, things that we've seen, things that we've allowed ourselves to see and do and feel and partake of. And... Um, I just thought it would be good for us to begin tonight just praying and asking for the Lord's grace because this can be a sensitive subject, and I think for a lot of us, we feel a real weakness in this area of our lives. And I know a lot of men feel disqualified by God because of the thought life that they have or practices that they can't kick. And so I just want to pray and ask God to be present with us and to strengthen and help us. And perhaps for you, if you're here tonight and you're saying, you know, this is an area of my life where 
I'm not really looking for, I don't really need like just a, another like, you know, kick to the groin of a sermon about this. What, what I need is God's help because I just don't know how to get out of this. I hope and pray that uh, tonight will be a time of real life and restoration for you. Perhaps a lifeline from God's spirit trying to pull you out of dangerous waters uh, in your life. Before I pray, somebody has got like a beeping thing that is repeat. You got it? It's back there? Oh, okay. I thought I heard it in the main sanctuary, though, too, during the worship time. Christina was like, is that me? Is that one of my things? So I don't know. It might be one of you guys. If you got like a pacemaker or something that's letting you know, like, as I'm about to fail, we we really want to deal with that before... All right, let's, let's pray together, guys. Lord, we just live in this uh, chaotic, uh, sexually broken time. People have made, we have made so much of the body. We've made so much of sex. We've made so much of beauty and image. And it just seems like the devil has excelled at getting his hooks into us in this way. Um, and so, Lord, we're men that are coming to you. We want to be Jesus' famous men. We want to have self-control. We want to be men who have victory. We want to be men who are walking in the light. But we also want to be men, Lord, who when we fail, if we fail, we want to turn to you afresh. We don't want to hide like Adam hid, but we want to be exposed before you so that you might continue your beautiful cleansing work in us. And so we commit ourselves, submit ourselves to you, Lord, afresh today. And I just pray, Lord, that your grace would be upon us and that you'd help us, Lord, to be growing men. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Okay, so this is an important subject. I think no study dealing with uh, men would be complete without first dealing with the subject of, or at least at some point, dealing with the subject of sexual immorality. Uh, the first real immorality you see in the Bible sexually uh, comes in the book of Genesis. You might remember after Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, there's an episode where a man named Lamech, he becomes the first polygamist. So you see this at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, you see it, of course, continue through Scripture. David's downfall and sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the Ephesian mob in Acts chapter 19, chanting for their sex god, Diana. All the way to the final judgment of the sexually immoral in Revelation 17 and 18, and everywhere in between, this is a really big deal for God's people and has been a really big deal for God's men. Sexual immorality has often, throughout the pages of Scripture and in church history, crippled God's men in a way that has sidelined them from his best for their lives. I think it's important to recognize that God does have standards regarding sexuality, all right, so in the Bible, if I could make it a very simple statement, fornication, that's a word in the Bible, fornication is when you engage in sexual activity before marriage. 
And when I say before marriage, I'm talking about heterosexual, monogamous marriage. Uh, but fornication is anything, uh, any sexual activity before heterosexual marriage. Well, adultery is when you engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. And we should be able to look at all of the damaging effects of these forms of sexual activity and see that they are not God's best, his design. The psychological trauma that has come to children, sexually transmitted diseases, broken homes and hearts, unwanted pregnancies, sexual addiction, the sex slave or trade industry, pornography, all of this should be evidence enough that all forms of sex outside of marriage between a husband and wife were never God's intention. Instead, what it seems Satan did is he took a wonderful, enjoyable, and powerful act, a true gift from God to our species, and Satan began to promote it outside of the confines of marriage. When Satan did this, it was like taking a fire from your fireplace and putting it on your living room couch. It's great in its proper context, the fireplace, and it's damaging outside of its proper context on your sofa. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says it this way. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What this shows us is that even the unmarried in the church are supposed to honor marriage and esteem for sexuality, the marriage bed, to, to set it apart and say that is where the sex, sexual act should occur. A single person in the church should be honored, a single person should be loved, a single person has a calling from God upon their lives, a single person should never be treated as less than in the body of Christ, and unfortunately that's happened in many churches, thinking that the marid, marital state is the ideal state. We shouldn't be thinking that way. Jesus was single, Paul was single. But the unmarried, according to this passage, should know that healthy churches will highly esteem marriage, teaching and counseling and aiding those who are married. And the married church should honor marriage in a lot of ways, but according to Hebrews chapter 13, they should let the marriage bed be undefiled. It's a major way to honor marriage. Keeping the marriage bed, the sexual union, unsoiled and uncontaminated is a significant way to respect the institution of marriage. Now, the common view about Christianity from our world is that Christianity is repressive and anti-sex. That's the kind of the common view, right? Christians are repressive. They want to repress your impulses, desires, drives, and interests, and they're anti-sex. You know, they're really not into it. They're prudish. They're strange. They are, want to distance themselves from it. Uh, you guys aren't anti-sex, are you? That's not how you feel, but that's how the world feels uh, about us. Now, there are, of course, Christians that do adopt anti-biblical views about sex, but the Bible does not hold those views. The Bible is thoroughly pro 
sex. It presents God as the inventor of it. I think we need to be reminded of that from time to time. Uh, Here's a handful of verses that highlight this truth. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. "Let Let your fountain be blessed. This is a man talking to his son. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. All right, so if you're a married man, please highlight that verse, underline that verse, do that verse, obey God's word. I know it might be difficult, but do what the word says. Song of Solomon, that's a whole book that highlights God's interest in romantic, sexual love. It's a book that has made so many other generations so uncomfortable that they tried to reinterpret it as an allegory of God's love for his people, God's love for his church. Uh, But it's a very sensual, romantic book. That, to me, that interpretation makes the book of Song of Solomon more awkward than just seeing it as God delighting in the love between a husband and a wife. Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse two, begins this way. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And that is probably one of the only G-rated verses in the whole book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 4, verse 6, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. This is getting a little more detailed, and if you really understand what's happening here, they're talking about the depths of the sex act together. Genesis 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife, here it is in creation, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. So the Bible is clear. Scripture is clear. God is interested in promoting the sexual life of heterosexual married couples. To him, sex inside of marriage is beautiful. It was part of his original and untainted creation. And one reason is that it's a beautiful inside marriage, but not outside of it, is that inside of marriage, sex can be things that it can't be outside of marriage. A safe, for instance, committed, for instance, building trust, for instance, not performative, for instance, marital glue, for instance, leading to a family, for instance, procreation, Serving someone else, for instance, rather than self-serving. All of these things can only happen sexually within the context of marriage as God designed it. Now, because of sin, it might not be these things inside of a particular marriage or an individual marriage, but outside of marriage, it is never these things. It never has the safety, the trust, the service, the family, the marital glue that it has within marriage. So if you're married, I want to encourage you, do not invite impurity into your marriage. Respect that marriage bed, as it says in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Don't allow lust or pornography or abuse or neglect or atrophy into the marriage bed. 
the fire of sexual love belongs in the fireplace of marital commitment, and if put in any other place, it's harmful, but in its proper context, it warms and it helps, all right? So that's just an exhortation concerning marriage, the marriage bed. But of course, the passage that I read to you is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul talks about sexual immorality. And this is a great passage of scripture to consider. Let's start again by reading the third verse. We'll just pick through it now, verse by verse, for the rest of our time together. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. All right, so many times we want to know what's God's will for my life. Well, here we have it in black and white. This is at least part of God's will for us, that we as God's men and also as women, of course, would abstain from sexual immorality. Now, of course, we live in a time where sexual immorality is fairly easy to enter into, isn't it? I mean, we have devices that we carry around in our pockets, many of us all day long, that can get us into trouble if we're not very careful. Um, And this is different than in past generations, isn't it? You know, I grew up in the 80s and in the 90s, and, uh, you know, for me, I, I grew up in a time where the internet wasn't quite what it was today. You know, I, I was the first of all of my friends to get an email address. And uh, that basically meant that my mom and dad and me could email each other about stuff because I just didn't know anybody else that I could communicate in that kind of way. But I still remember one of the first times that a friend of mine found pornography on the internet. You know, we had, as guys, exposed ourselves to various things in other formats, but he called me into his room. He's like, hey, I want you to see this. And he started loading this website. And there was just, I'm so thankful to God. There was just something in that moment where it just terrified me. I just knew if it's that easy, it's gonna sink its hooks into me and I'm done. And so I think God just rescued me in that moment. I think I was 16 or 17 years old. I think he just rescued me and just pulled me out before it really got a stranglehold in my life in that kind of way. But of course, we live in a time now where, you know, it's tough to even have a social media profile without being inundated with images that you might even not prefer to see. I, I read recently a Wall Street Journal expose that they did on the social media service TikTok, where what they did is they ran all of these, they created all of these um, computerized accounts, these bots, basically, that looked as if they were the TikTok accounts of 14 and 15-year-old boys. And they would run through and what that would happen is the way that TikTok populates what you see is if you ever slow down on an image, then it knows, oh, you liked those kinds of images. So we'll give you more of that kind of content. Now, let me ask you, how many 14 or 15-year-old boys do you know that when they see a scantily clad woman will speed up the scroll? <laughs> you know, there's probably a pause. There's a moment. There's a second of checking her out. And what they discovered was that within a week or so, 
Every one of these computerized accounts was filled with sexually explicit content. It was mostly, by the end of a week, sexually explicit content that these boys, they weren't really boys, but they were computerized that the Wall Street Journal had created, that these boys were viewing. It's just a difficult time that we're in is what I'm trying to illustrate. We might think to ourselves that we have it worse than anyone else has ever had it and that no society has ever existed that has been like ours. This is why I really appreciate this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 passage. The culture of Thessalonica was a sexually immoral one similar to our society. Obviously, without all of the digital trappings that we have today, Uh, But it was much different than the Jewish cultures that much of the Bible centers upon. You know, in the Jewish cultures, sexual immorality existed, but there was a baseline ethic amongst God's people for the most part. But Thessalonica and the citizens of Thessalonica, they were rooted in Greco-Roman thinking, and they had everything that we have today. They had fornication, they had adultery, they had homosexuality, they had pedophilia, they had more pornographic and erotic perversions and practices than I care to mention in their society. And on top of that, they even had religions, mystery religions, that came came prepackaged with prostitution as part of the worship service. So you could almost say that you were a spiritual person while simultaneously living out your sexual fantasies. So we live in a similar kind of culture to the Thessalonian believers, a sexually immoral culture. And our culture believes, of course, that mankind is basically good. This morning, we talked about the fall of humanity, the brokenness in humanity, uh, that original sin exists and has permeated everything and everyone But this is not a view, of course, that our culture shares. So when people in our culture are experiencing desires and passions and drives, uh, for them, it's something that they should express and live out because in their mentality, they are basically created good or evolved as good. Uh, But for believers, we understand that that's not the reality. I mean, to hear some people talk it, talk about it today, you'd have to be basically a modern-day Hitler to be thought of as an evil person today, either that or a Christian, I think, in some camps. This, combined with the belief that sex is a merely biological function, means that our culture believes that we should be controlled by our urges, not any divine standard. To them, to our culture, anything consensual goes. So casual sex will pervade. And because sex is worshipped so highly, any potential mate must be tested for sexual compatibility before anything close to a marital commitment is made. So what we're looking at here in this passage is a text that was given to a group of believers that were up against it like we are. So the first thing that we have to discover as Christian men is that God is interested in our sexual purity. I mean, we read it right there in verse 3. If you want to know God's will for your life, part of it is that we should abstain from sexual immorality. This is not God as a nosy, busybody, you know, who's like 
all interested in weird stuff. No, this is God as a good father who's looking at our lives and saying, I want you to experience the very best of what it means to be human, so I want you to abstain from these things that will so damage your heart and soul. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to, as we pick our way through this passage, we're going to think first about three hows. How can I fight against sexual immorality? And then we'll see three reasons why we should combat sexual immorality, all according to the Apostle Paul. All right, so how number one is this. We must control our bodies. We must control our own bodies. Look at what he said there in verse four. He said that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. All right, so the first step that a Jesus guy needs to take in avoiding sexual immorality is to get control of his own body. You know, before we were Christians, before we came to know Jesus, we were, of course, ruled by our our passions, dominated by our passions. But now what Paul tells us in Christ is that we are told that we must control our own bodies. You know, when Paul wrote to Titus, who was a pastor, he told Titus about what the individual members in the church needed to be sharing with each other. So he said, you know, tell the older women to say these things to the younger women. Tell the older women this. Tell the older men that. Tell the older women to say, to the older men to say these things to the younger men. And tell the younger men to have self-control. It was just like a one-line thing. Like there's one thing that those guys need to learn, and it's, number one, self-control. This is important. Paul is talking about this here again to the Thessalonian church, to know how to control our own body in holiness and honor. Now, this first step, I think, is genius because the common myth is that men cannot do this, that men cannot help themselves and that they cannot control their impulses, that they cannot control their own bodies. Men commonly believe that their actions are subservient to the desires, tastes, and passions of their bodies. The Corinthian church tried to come at Paul with this argument one time. They said to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they said, hey, the stomach needs food in order to survive. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. And the reason they were pointing that out to Paul is they were trying to say that in the same way that the the stomach needs food, so the body needs sex. That's just the way it is, Paul the Apostle. I don't know if you understand this, but this is the way that we are made and constructed. But Paul uh, broke apart their theological argument. He said, yeah, it's true. The stomach does need food, but it is not true that the human body cannot survive without sex. The human body, Paul said to them, cannot survive without God. What he allowed them to understand or tried to help them understand is that what we truly need, just like the stomach needs food, we truly need God. As Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need the Lord. We need God. So in other words, well, it might be true that there's a passion and a drive for sex. The body was made for God, and it finds its highest fulfillment in and with God. 
by getting into the word of God and walking with the spirit of God, we'll be able to more and more gain control over our bodies. So as Christian men, we have to confess or profess that we are under new management, amen? We've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Our lives are no longer our own. God has loved us, God does love us, and God will love us, so now we spend our lives responding to his love. He's restoring us into the image that we lost at the fall, and we seek to walk with him for the duration of our lives. In a sense, we believe that our lives aren't really our own and that they belong to God. But in another sense, we believe that this life is most definitely ours. The flavor, the tenor, the focus of our lives, they're up to us. And the way we choose to live is important to God, but also important to the world around us. None of us are an island. All our decisions affect others. Paul said it this way. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now this first this is going to be a battle. I mean, we should not think otherwise. There are elements at play that are designed to keep us from walking with God. The three main ones are the world, a system that is designed to draw us into its way of thought and to operate contrary to the word. Then there's the spiritual battle that we're in against principalities and powers of darkness, so the devil and the forces that he operates with. And then there's the body, the flesh. The body is that part of us that is not yet fully redeemed. You don't have your new body yet. I don't have my new body yet. So though you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, you're carrying around with you a body that has tasted what sin is like. It's experienced it. It's partaken of it throughout your life. And so one of our biggest obstacles is dealing with the body itself, the very thing that we carry around with us. So the first thing that Paul says is you've got to control your own body. I'll talk a little bit about the how of this in a moment, but this is a major step. Number two, though, Paul says we need to, secondly, expect to live counterculturally. Look at what he says in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, a believing man must understand that he is called to live a countercultural life. There's the way of man, the way of the Gentiles, people who do not know God, he said. But believing men expect to live a different kind of life. We expect to uh, be different from the culture around us. Listen, guys, I think we're well past the time where we would expect that the culture around us would hold the same sexual standards that we hold as Christian men, right? We're well past that time. Your standards and your lifestyle will be different from the world around you. And this is an important expectation for a Christian man to have. 
understand that there might be times where you're mocked, where you're scoffed at, where you're ridiculed. This could be direct scoffing or direct ridicule, or it could be indirect as well, right? I mean, how many times have you come across some portrayal of someone who thinks like you in popular media? And it's never, uh, it's, it's usually never held up in like a high, high esteem. Like, look at this guy not willing to play the field. Look at this guy being honorable. Look at this guy inexperienced sexually. It's never thought of as a good thing. It's always thought of as a prudish or terrible thing. You've got to expect and prepare yourself for that kind of ridicule. You have to be prepared for funny conversations and odd looks. You have to be prepared when people ask you, when men ask you, why don't you sleep with your girlfriend? Why don't you look at pornography? Why don't you entertain the thought of an affair? You have to prepare yourself for living a different kind of life. And men, we are different, amen? Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he said, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. In other words, according to Peter, we're pilgrims and sojourners. We don't even belong here. This is not our home. When Jesus offered up his body on the cross for our redemption, his full intention was to bring as many sons to glory as possible. And he's gone to prepare a place for us, and that's where we ultimately belong. Remember Abraham, it says of him that he longed for a future city whose designer and builder is God. That's what Christian men are. We're saying this world is, I'm gonna do as well as I can here and, and serve this community as well as I can, but I'm looking for another place. You've got to expect to live a countercultural life. Your lifestyle as a believer will be different. So society is going to embrace a different sex ethic as, than we do, but God is a different brand of life for us. So as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.18, we must flee sexual immorality. All right, now the third how we get control of our bodies, we expect to live counterculturally. The third how is that we, number three, must consider others over ourselves. Consider, consider others over yourself. He says in verse six, do these things so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. To me, this is one of the most important steps to free yourself from sexual immorality. Basically, what Paul tells them here is to consider how their sexual sin is going to affect other people. In other words, the believing man should consider others over himself when it comes to his sexual activity. Now, this applies in a few different ways. First of all, we hurt the person that we've entered into the sexual sin with. Uh, he says, consider your brother in this passage. And that word brother can mean mankind, other human beings. So Paul is telling us that our sexual impurity actually negatively impacts humanity in some way. It might seem like a drop in the bucket, but it actually is polluting the bucket. And so we've got to be careful. Those we engage in sexual immorality with are cheapened. They're 
operating as less than the image of God that God gave to them. They've given a piece of themselves away. And even if they're a person on a digital screen, they've been hurt in that exchange. So we have to consider how sexual immorality hurts other real human beings. Second, we hurt those that are close to us when we engage in sexual immorality. Our families or our future families are harmed by our sexual sin. Husbands are weakened, disabled from leadership and love in their marriage. I know a lot of fathers who have stopped encouraging and teaching and instructing their children because they felt completely disqualified to do so because of sexual immorality. Families are broken up, friendships are strained, community groups become awkward, untenable. Your sexual sin hurts these relationships. We've got to consider how this happens, how this affects other people, how it affects our brothers and sisters uh, in uh, Christ, but also in our family, those closest to us, our children, both present and future, will be negatively affected by our sexual sin. And I was just thinking the other day uh, about early on in my life, you know, when I was just a teenager and I was really battling these things intensely, I remember there was a season of my life where my parents let me have a television in my room. I don't know what they were thinking, but I'm a pretty technologically savvy person, so I figured out how to get cable in my room. They thought I just had it there for video games or whatever, but I got a cable box and you know all that kind of stuff. And one of the thoughts I remember is I remember, you know, I would turn on like the music video channels and everything like that, and I just couldn't wait for some of those artists to come on the screen that were very sexual, overly sexualized in nature. And I look back at that and I realize, you know, that has affected me even all the way to this day. You know, my relationship with music is different than it could have been if I'd have never gone that route, if I'd never seen those images or delighted over them in that sexual kind of way. And that impacted not just me, but it impacted my family, my relationships, the people in my life. But we also have to consider how sexual immorality hurts not just those close to us, but the church, the body of Christ. You know, you might not ever meet the Christians that are in other nations around the world. You might not ever meet the underground church in China, but in an unseen and very real way, our sexual sin hurts them. The reason for this is simple. Sexual sin weakens the church locally and universally. And when the church is weakened in one place, all the body of Christ suffers along with it. And you might feel like it's a small thing, but in totality, it makes a difference. So we have to consider how our sexual sin affects our family in Christ. Now, this is part of the reason that Paul urged the Thessalonians to make sure that they did not wrong their brothers in this matter. He's like, you could hurt other people with this activity. So we have to consider the seriousness of this. You know, Jesus considered it a big deal to stumble another person into sin. He said in Matthew 18, verse 6, he said, whoever causes a little one who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
It's a harsh word from Jesus, but he seems to really care about how we're influencing other people. Are we leading them astray? Are we stumbling them into despair and sin? So this is, these are some serious warnings from Paul, but he's telling us, yeah, you need to be people who get control of your bodies, live counterculturally, expect to live counterculturally, and consider others above yourself. Now, let's move to the why. Those are three hows, but let's move to the why. The first why is so fascinating. It's in verse six. He says, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, this first why is that we should have a motive for sexual purity because of the vengeance of God. It's a fascinating why. First of all, the fact that God even gives us whys in the first place, gives us reasons in the first place, that's his grace. God does not have to give the because, right? He could just tell us, but here he gives us the reason, the logic um, underneath his command. This is the grace of God to do this. But the first reason is that God is an avenger in every area of life. Uh, there's the final judgment, of course, but I don't think that's precisely what Paul is talking about when he says that the vengeance of God is present. I think what he's saying is that God is busy at work right now. God is ultimately going to reconcile all accounts, but right now, especially among his people, he's involved in our lives. Obedience leads to great blessing, while sin has pain embedded with it. So one great motive for sexual purity is the vengeance of God. God is a just judge, and it's his responsibility and duty to discipline us for our sin. Not only that, but he's promised to build in, uh, into our lives consequences for sexual immorality. So there are consequences, damage, marriages, like I said earlier, broken families, divorce, disease, absence of the blessing of God, lost eternal rewards, and even death are some of the consequences mentioned in the Bible that are attached to this sin. So this helps us understand a strong motivation for avoiding sexual sin that God will deal with the professing Christian who enters into this in his life. So we should never expect that we are getting away with sexual sin. It's something that cripples us. And as I've already said, it leads to damaged people and marriages and families. A lot of hurt flows from this area of life. And the hand of the Lord comes upon us in a in a disciplinary way when this enters into our life. The blessing of God begins to dry up. Okay, this is a major reason to pursue sexual purity because the Lord, he said, is an avenger in all these things. God will not allow this activity to slide in our lives. He'll judge it eternally and he'll deal with it right now. So a little bit of the fear of the Lord, in other words, in Paul's estimation of why. But another reason why, he says in verse 7, he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Okay, God has 
Another reason why we shouldn't enter, enter into sexual immorality, it's God's calling on our lives. He's got a higher and better calling for us. So why avoid sexual sin? Because God's called us to a more honorable and exalted type of life. He's called us to something better. We're not powerless creatures left to follow the impulses of our bodies like animals, but instead we're called to be men. We're called to be men of God, figureheads of justice, patriarchs of godly generations, and leaders of God's people. God has a high calling on each one of our lives in Christ, a strong purpose for each one of us. If you're a believer, that means that you've been elected, chosen by God. And so you're to rejoice at that adoption, that selection by God, and you're to say, there's something important about me. I can't go that route because of who I am. Remember what Nehemiah said when they tried to get him to come down from the wall to meet them in the plane, to have a conversation, to try to hash things out? He said, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down from the wall. I'm doing a great work. And I think as Christian men, when we get this perspective in our minds of the calling of God upon our lives, it helps us not just say, man, I don't wanna go there because of a negative reason. That negative reason is here in scripture, the vengeance of God. But I also don't wanna go there because of a positive reason. God has called me up to a higher kind of life. If I go down there, that's not me. That's not who I am anymore. I've been set free from these things. All right, so we are to be, as Paul said in Ephesians 4 verse one, those who walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. All right, the third why is found in verse eight. It's God's spirit inside of us. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The final reason that we don't engage in sexual immorality is because of God's spirit within us. God has put his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, which means he's also put his law into our minds and written it upon our hearts. Our bodies are the temples now of the Holy Spirit of God. And as the Spirit is working inside of us, he is reshaping us from the inside out. So now we want to be a people who respect the fact that we are God's house, that the Spirit is residing within us. All right, now everything I've said so far in this Jesus famous men's study should help you deal with sexual immorality. For instance, last month we, we talked we talked about being men of the word and men of prayer. Uh, these are things that have been greatly helpful to me in overcoming sexual immorality in my walk with Jesus. I've needed the word, I've needed prayer. Uh, in the future, we're gonna talk about community, church life, uh, engaging with other brothers in Christ. This is another uh, weapon at our disposal that is so helpful in getting control of the body and being men who are sanctified and godly, holy, set apart. So these aren't just standalone components. This is part of our overall walk with Jesus. But when it comes to this particular sin, uh, it's important to put on a full-on frontal attack. Uh, right after 
explaining that looking at a woman with lust in your heart is actually equal to a fornication or adultery in the sight of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. In other words, what Jesus said is, I want you to be incredibly aggressive when it comes to avoiding this particular sin. You need to take drastic measures, if need be, to win this particular battle. I'll never forget when I was a youth pastor, I had a young uh, student named, his name was Roger. I called him Roger the Clamorous Zealot because he was just one of these guys and when he got saved, it's like everybody knew that he got saved. His mom, he was in Pacific Grove. His mom was a lesbian. His dad was a homosexual man and he just began walking with Jesus passionately, fervently, and he was preaching the gospel in his home. He was preaching the gospel on campus. But he was battling with this area of his life, and it came through the internet connection that was in his home. And I'll never forget the time he came to me at youth group one night, and he said, Nate, I had to just, I took the wire that connected my computer to the wall, and I took it down to a Silomar Beach, you know, that's what kids in Pacific Grove do, and he said, and I threw it into the ocean, you know, I'm like, well, that's not very good environmentally, but spiritually, that's a great decision. It reminded me of what Jesus said, you know, to take drastic measures if need be, and so I'd encourage you to do that, brothers, um, you know, to take whatever steps you need to take so that uh, you can be in the light. Um, for me, I've been able to design things in a way here in my role at the church where um, some key assistant pastors know my internet activity and so does my wife. And if I'm looking at the wrong thing, those pastors know to alert our board of directors who are the ones that fire me and they know to do it if I'm in the wrong spaces in the online world. That puts a little bit of the fear of God in me, I'll tell you that much. And that helps me stay where I want to stay. So I'd encourage you to take those steps. You know, my house is uh, nearby, and it's kind of at the bottom of Jack's Peak over here. And uh, during the wintertime, the sun is so low that our backyard, for about four months, it never gets any sunlight. And uh, I'm not a very, uh, I don't like yard work very much. And so our backyard gets kind of funky in the wintertime. Just weird things grow out there, you know, because there's no sunlight, so weird mushrooms and funguses, and I don't know, just strange things are out there. But the funny thing is that when the seasons shift and the sun begins to come out and it's shining in that yard, it just has a way of killing off so many of those funky things that grow in the dark. And I think for us as men, we should see that as a great metaphor for our lives. Let's get in the light as much as possible 
so that the things that can grow more easily in the dark are killed off in our lives. All right, let me close by just saying this, though. A lot of you guys might feel like, yeah, this strikes a chord with me, but maybe there's a little bit of reservation in you. And maybe the reservation has to do with knowing that Christians are not under law, but under grace. You know, we're called to have a love relationship with God. And so maybe for some of you, as I'm saying these things, you're saying, you know, this sounds a little bit stringent. This sounds kind of legalistic. Now, it's true that some Christians respond to elements like we looked at tonight with legalism, for sure. Uh, They think that through rules, regulations, codes, like Paul said to the Colossian church, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. They think that they can approve themselves in God's sight through their actions. They think they can earn God's favor, maybe even earn God's salvation. But the problem with legalism is it has way too low a view of God and his holiness, his righteousness, his purity, his transcendence, like somehow I could attain to his level of holiness myself, and it also has too high a view of our personal ability. Other people respond in the opposite direction with license. You know, they're so tired of talks like we just had tonight, so tired of any rule, any regulation, so tired of maybe feeling guilty or ashamed of any act in their lives, that instead what they do is they don't run to legalism, they run to license. They run to every impulse and demand that God accept them just as they are. But here's the thing, license, it's not a real relationship with God. What relationship do you know of where there isn't at least some code of conduct that exists between the two parties that are in a relationship? When I made a covenant with my wife in marriage, that relationship, it wasn't just a, hey, you need to accept me just like I am, and I'm gonna do whatever I want, and every impulse I have, I'm gonna live it out. No, it was, I'm gonna deny myself for you. There will be times I do what I don't wanna do for the sake of you and our marriage. That's a relationship. And that's what we have with the living God. Now, what other people do in response to the legalism and license quandary is they try to balance the two. They live in what I call Christian limbo. And what they think is that they can balance legalism and license by avoiding every extreme and living right in the middle. So this person, their goal is to not be too legalistic. You'll hear them saying that. I don't wanna be too legalistic. Like, what does that mean? Is just like a little legalism okay to you? I don't wanna be too legalistic. And I also don't wanna go too far into liberties. This This person is like Johnny Cash. They're just trying to walk the line the entirety of their lives. I think what this produces is a schizophrenic type of believer who bounces wildly between a few rules and regulations 
and moments of needing to tap into their wild side to sort of release themselves. This kind of Christian has a Bible, they go to church, they maybe serve a little bit, but they still party from time to time, sleep with whoever they're dating, and all of this is so that they can stay away from being too legalistic. This is not the way. Okay, but the last person that I'll describe, and then we'll end tonight, is that there is a believer who's discovered the grace of God to such an incredible degree that what they've discovered is liberty. James described this person like this in James 2, verse 12. He said, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What liberty communicates is the the idea of being set free. And that's what's happened in the believer's life. For this person, it's not about legalism, it's not about license or some kind of juggling act between the two, but absolute freedom to follow and love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. This kind of Christian doesn't wanna obey God or follow his dictates in order to earn anything from God but simply because of love for God. This believer longs to be well-pleasing in his sight. His grace has so impacted this person. Jesus has become famous to them that so much so that his soul can't help but live for God. There's no begrudging obligation in in his relationship with God, but a healthy brand of thankfulness which leads to a feeling of responsibility towards God. And the reason I call this liberty is because this kind of person is able to live a truly free kind of life. To be blunt, this person can have sex with whoever they want to. They can drink as much as they want to. They can buy whatever they want to simply because God has won over their hearts. The chief desire of this believer is to please God. So in response to God's wonderful grace, This Christian only wants to enjoy sex with the spouse that God gave him. He never wants to become intoxicated with any substance, and he wants God to direct his every decision in life. And I believe that this person is truly set free. And that's, I think, what we should want to be. So perhaps as we're thinking about these concepts, we should say, this isn't legalism, I don't want license, and I don't want some weird balance between the two. I want to be judged by the law of liberty, so free to pursue God completely that I leave all this stuff, including our subject tonight, all this sexual immorality behind. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.